This is a Federal News Network podcast. The relationship between a military veteran and the Veterans Affairs Department can literally last a lifetime. It can also be fraught with disputed decisions and long backlogs. After spending three years as Undersecretary for Veterans Benefits during the Trump administration, Paul Lawrence has learned a few lessons. He joined me earlier in studio with what they were. And, Paul, the uh, idea of this lifelong relationship is real, isn't it? I mean, veterans are beneficiaries one way or another for life. Right. Actually, in fact, it's interesting, Tom, because if you think about it, veterans, when they were in the military, are demonstrating the responsibilities of citizenship, protecting us all. And then they get rights afterwards. And this comes from Congress in terms of the benefits. And the deal is or the attempt is to connect veterans to VA right away. And there was a new program put in place called Solid Start to try to talk to veterans and remind them that VA is there for them. And then we administer the benefits. That's what I oversaw that they've earned that's supposed to help them accelerate their pursuit of the American dream. The GI Bill education benefit gets them an education, free college and things like that, get them a great job. The home loan guarantee, buy a home with no money down when all your friends are trying to save, as well as things like disability compensation if you've been injured or disabled in service. So it's really well thought out. But as your lead-in points out, there are some challenges administering benefits and veterans are not a shy group, so they remind us of it all the time when I was in office. The idea of backlogs is particularly troublesome. It's something that plagues so many federal programs. And if you're waiting for a disability decision and you are actually disabled, then that can be real hardship. And so over the years, there have been various attempts to try to get through this. What did you find? Well, one of the things I was most proud of is that when during I was there, the backlog, those are claims that are waiting more than 125 days to be adjudicated. And so you see these numbers, you know, 500,000, 600,000. We got it to the lowest level ever, ever, ever in VBA history of just under 65,000 claims. And that was really pretty good. In fact, at one point, we were worried about running out of work. But as the number of claims increase, and if the administration issues presumptives, hey, if you've been there and have these conditions, you know, claims increase. You're right. It's a steady ebb and flow. And nothing frustrates veterans more than working in the private sector or seeing the private sector and seeing how fast things are happening, then turning to the VA and seeing things are going slow. So that's a real important performance metric and one I paid a lot of attention to. It involved, you know, literally hands-on management, working with the team and the right number of employees, but also techniques, technology, and the like, but really managing it. It isn't just a passive thing that happens to veterans, and it pains me when the backlog grows because that means veterans are suffering. Getting benefits from VBA enables you now to go to the VHA and get medical care. It really sets in motion a lot of things, so it's very, very important. And quite frankly, the final sort of point is if your first experience out of the military is with a good processing of your claim, you're perception of VA is very, very positive, And I think that was important, too. Sure. And I wanted to switch gears and ask about the issue of just federal public program management from the standpoint of the fact that in the VBA, the benefits piece, there is only one political appointee, and that is the undersecretary, the job you had. So to do anything, you really need to get the bureaucracy on your side. 
That's right. I was somewhat surprised. I didn't really appreciate that until I got there. But to be honest with you, it was very much a run the trains operation. And so I was very lucky and fortunate that there was a great set of careers there who really did want to focus on the mission of serving veterans. If I recall right, 55% of the VBA employees are were veterans. So it was very much veterans helping veterans. And it was easy to motivate them to want to improve service. And quite frankly, the better they got, the easier it was to talk about how good benefits were being delivered and the better they wanted to be. So it was good to see the transformation from an organization that was always seen as behind or struggling to one that really was doing great work for our veterans by the time we all left. We're speaking with Paul Lawrence. He's former VA Undersecretary for Benefits. And how well do you think the military, the Defense Department, prepares about-to-be veterans for veteran life, including informing them of what they need to do next with respect to the Veterans Affairs Department? Well, they try real hard to do it. I think you know there's a program called Transition Assistance, or TAP, Transition Assistance Program, that's supposed to be offered to service members before they fulfill their service obligation leave. The challenge, of course, is the military thinks about retention, and so there's just not a lot of personal incentives to get our veterans there. So they do make it available. I wish attendance were higher. I wish the course were longer. Longer, but it's structured by law. So they do, and it's very much different than back in the day when I left. You know, here's your DD-214. See you later. Bye. I sent resumes to folks I found in a phone book to try to find a new job. So it's very, very different. And the availability of private sector organizations, nonprofits, social media organizations to help veterans become employed once they become is much, much greater. I remember phone books. They used to have pages that were yellow in the back. And you there, could find there a you business go. There. We remember that, yeah. <laughs> and of course, your last year in office was the first year of the pandemic, and we know that had profound benefits on the health side of VA. Did it really affect the benefit side in any way, and how did you have to operationalize around that? Sure. A lot of things had been done in person. Veterans would walk into the VBA offices around the country. You couldn't do that anymore. Education was changed tremendously. You used to go to a campus and get a benefit based on your attendance at campus, but if you took your classes online, you got much less of this housing allowance. So Congress changed the law, so we had a scurry to get that figured out as to who was due what. A lot of the in-person things changed. So as a result, I started doing telephone town halls with veterans to get them information and answer their questions and help them with that. So one of the big things was my personal involvement in terms of these telephone town halls. I did 110 in 2020, reached about 5.7 million veterans, and I took questions during it. It wasn't one-way conversation, had a team listening in to help veterans. So I estimate taking 15 questions on these 110, I talked to personally 1,500 or more veterans. And so I really learned a lot about their experience, and it really really helped me develop a better understanding of what veterans want from the VA, from VBA, and also just how to talk to our team about it. You know, they would brief me on things and I would be able to say, well, you know, when I talk to veterans on the phone, they're telling me this process isn't working exactly as we describe it. Can we look at it better? So it was valuable for a lot of reasons, but it was a very hard year. So the challenge then is making sure that the process matches what you and the staff as veterans know that veterans care about 
and desire, but sometimes the processes don't match up. The processes don't match up and also our understanding of what is expected. So I went into their job thinking, hey, what really matters is you get the benefits process quickly. But what I also heard was how veterans struggle and how complex the system is. And so how was just a very hard experience. So I thought about, you know, the real challenge is to make it a better experience and really appreciate what the veterans are going through. Yes, they want it fast, but it shouldn't take lawyers or people just so frustrated at the forms and the like. So the real challenge is making it better. You know, promising veterans benefits, but not being able to deliver them really is a false promise. And there are other ways to get information. I mean, talking to veterans and being able to have an exchange with 1,500 of them is good information. But are there also metrics on the data sense? Because now the trend in government is data driven decision-making and program design, yeah. what are the most important metrics other than you know how big the backlog is? Certainly. Well, basically, there was a lot of metrics. VBA was really ahead of the curve in sort of their understanding of information. And actually, Tom, the challenge was just the opposite. What are the right few metrics to get everyone to pay attention to? So I probably spent the first six months figuring that out. And then I think you may recall, during my time in office, every three months, I held a quarterly broadcast of essentially VBA's performance pointing out by the different business lines the key metrics, how fast things had been done, how many were waiting, what the quality of it was, and some new programs. So I was very proud of being transparent, identifying those, and quite frankly, talking about how well we were doing, and even to the point where if things weren't going well, what was going to be done to fix it so that the next time it came back in three months could talk about it. So it was actually you know the problem of too much data, narrowing it down and finding the right things. And again, Veterans would tell you, this is what I expect from this service. I expect my pension delivered fast. You know, I expect that, you know, you to process all this paperwork that you asked for me, you know, quickly and accurately. And often in public life, much is made of variations between generations. In the Veterans Affairs Department, you've got still serving a few Korean War veterans or, well, actually some World War II people are still mm-hmm. alive, a few. A lot of Vietnam a lot of subsequent to Vietnam, many Iraq and Afghanistan. That's you know the major cohort right now coming in. But is there really that much generational difference between what it is people need and want from VA, whether there, it's the Vietnam era or Afghanistan? Not broadly. They all expect a high level of service. And part of what my view of the world is, you know, it's reasonable to think that veterans should get world-class service from the VA. That ought to be the minimum understanding. So they all deserve a great deal of service from VA in response to their service. But there are some subtleties, right? We're smarter about things that took place. Our understanding of environmental sciences tells us about certain benefits. Our ability to handle certain things is different. But broadly, you know, the GI Bill goes back to World War II, and that's still one of the most used benefits, right? So it, it gets improved and the like. But no, veterans expect the same thing. And really, the challenge is to figure out how to deliver it. They receive the information differently. You know, as you point out, veterans now want everything online. But, you know, our more senior veterans don't do that. In fact, I was surprised with the Teletown Halls I referred to earlier how important phone calls were to folks. And and I don't mean just like, you know, in the hills of our country, but just outside the major cities where we forget internet connectivity isn't as strong as maybe we think it should be. So it was really the subtle differences in understanding that. But you're right. At any one point, you're serving a wide range of customers. So it's different in the private sector where you could segment and decide which ones are easiest to deal with. So no, you've got to deal with them all. Paul Lawrence is former VA Undersecretary for Benefits and author of Transparency. Forming Service to Veterans, a new book. Thanks for joining me. No, thank you for having me.
Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but... Uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But 
really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot, both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, 
is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.